Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of CMS Pensions Lawcast. This is the first of a three-part series on pensions de-risking and today we'll be dealing with longevity swaps. I'm James Parker, I'm a partner in the CMS Pensions team and I'm very fortunate today to be joined by two industry experts, Amy Kessler, Senior Vice President and Head of Longevity Risk Transfer at Prudential Financial, one of the world's largest reinsurers, and Ian Ailey, Head of Transactions at Willis Towers Watson. Today, Ian, Amy and I will take you through the following. First, the basics. What's a longevity risk and what's a longevity swap? Second, what determines if a pension scheme will undertake a longevity swap or a buy-in? What's the legal structure of a longevity swap? What's current market activity and what are the factors driving that activity? And then, most topical of all, COVID-19. In view of the ongoing pandemic, should trustees defer ongoing longevity swaps or other de-risking transactions. So at this point, I'll hand over to Ian, who will take us through the basics. Thank you, James. Hello, everybody. Before we talk about what a longevity swap is and how it might be deployed, it's perhaps worth just making sure we all have a similar view of what longevity risk is itself. In its simplest form, from a pension trustee perspective, it's the risk that the members live longer than anticipated when setting the funding level for the scheme. And hence, the scheme is responsible for paying pensions to them, those, member, those members for longer. If we delve a little deeper, longevity risk comes from five sources, three of which are commonly considered when setting a pension scheme valuation, and two are perhaps more, more of a consideration when thinking about hedging risk. So the three that are more regularly considered are the base table risk, that is the risk that the assessment of mortality for the population is appropriate in the future. Bearing in mind, the assessment is based on a historic population. The idiosyncratic risk, that's the risk that the population behaves in a manner different to that expected mortality, even if the base table has been set at an appropriate level. And then probably for larger schemes, the most important uh, and influential risk is the trend risk. That's the risk that mortality rates in future change in a manner different to that forecast when setting the assumptions. Those three risks are commonly considered by pension schemes and setting valuations, as I said. Two further risks, more for consideration when thinking about hedging risk, is model risk, that is, any projection of mortality is based on models, and those models are likely based on historic data, but they are predictive of the future, an unknown future. So there is inherent risk. And finally, market risk. That's the risk that the cost of insuring or hedging longevity might change into the future. Whilst today we might know what the cost is, there's no guarantee that that cost will be constant. So what is a longevity swap? Although it's called a swap, i.e. a derivative, in reality, today's instruments are predominantly written in insurance. And and a longevity swap, as called, is an insurance product which provides pension trustees with a certain income in exchange for uh, a variable amount. So the longevity swap provides the pension scheme with an income that matches the outflow of their liabilities to pensioners. 
And in return, the pension scheme commits to a provider to pay a fixed amount of, of payments over time. These two payments in, in reality are netted. So there will be one payment going either to the provider or to the pension scheme. But what the longevity swap provides for the pension scheme is a certainty of their financial obligation in respect of the group of members that are covered. And consequently, when setting their investment strategy and hedging strategy, they have absolute confidence as to what their liabilities are. Because should members live longer than anticipated, their liability to members has changed, but it's covered by the income from the longevity swap. Perhaps we can consider what that might look like for a pension scheme. If you imagine a forecast set of cash flows made up of the payments to each member of a pension scheme each month into the future, and this set of cash flows will run off over time as some of the population die. And then add to that a margin that a, a provider would charge in terms of a risk fee, and that is the fixed leg. That's the obligation that the pension scheme is making to, to the provider ongoing. And those amounts are paid on a monthly basis going forward. What might actually happen is that the survival of the pensioners that are covered by the swap, they may live longer, or conversely, they may live shorter than anticipated when setting that original set of cash flows. And those original cash flows are the function of a negotiation with the provider. Now, in the scenario that some of the pensioners live longer than anticipated, then those pensioners will receive more pension income from the trustees. And that pension income will be in part funded through the longevity swap as the pension scheme comes in the money in respect of the agreement. Conversely, of course, if members live less long than anticipated, then the income of the pensioners is lower. The obligation to pay those pensioners by the trustee is lower. However, they have committed to pay the provider the fixed leg. So therefore, part of their assets will be diverted to the provider and part to paying of the pensions. However, from outset, they have absolute certainty of the liabilities in respect of those pensioners. So if that is what a longevity swap looks like, then what sort of trustee, what sort of pension scheme would use a longevity swap rather than, say, a buy-in where the, the protection is funded with assets? And indeed, some trustees may choose to self-manage on the basis that they believe that's a more effective approach for them. So if we take those three groups one by one, those that perhaps self-manage typically will be running considerable investment risk. They'll typically be less well-funded and find the cost of hedging is not attractive as it would mean A, paying a premium to the provider, but B, also it might restrict their ability to achieve return. Conversely, a more mature, well-funded pension scheme may feel that they wish to um, manage longevity risk through transferring the entire risk, longevity and asset risk, to an insurer, either through a buy-in or perhaps ultimately a buy-out of the liabilities. In this scenario, the trustee is probably, uh, in respect of a pension scheme, that has a well-matched portfolio of assets, is well-funded, um, perhaps has an aim to buy out either in the short or medium term, 
uh, and, and maybe is attracted to a lower governance environment that the buy-in represents. Our third group are those that may undertake a longevity swap. Now, typically, these clients are both well-hedged, uh, they have diversified asset risks, and they're well-progressed on their journey of de-risking. And consequently, longevity risk becomes a more material consideration for them. However, they, they may need to retain assets, either to generate return or uh, as collateral for other hedging that they have in place. They may be willing to embrace a slightly higher governance required of maintaining a longevity swap. And many are not considering ultimately buyout, but considering a self-sufficient runoff whereby they de-risk the asset and liability portfolios uh, and run the pension liability off over time. At that point, James, I'll hand back to you to talk through the structure. Thank you, Ian. So what's the legal structure of a longevity swap? There are three principal parties to a longevity swap. The trustee of a pension scheme, an intermediary, as Ian said, that's likely to be an insurer, so I'll come back to that, and a reinsurer. So first, the trustee and the intermediary, or the insurer, will enter into an insurance agreement. And under that insurance agreement, it will transfer 100% of the longevity risk relating to the relevant members and their contingent beneficiaries. In turn, the intermediary or the insurer will enter into a reinsurance agreement with the reinsurer under which it will transfer most, if not all, of the longevity risk. Again, I'll come back to that point in a second. In addition, all three parties will enter into a coordination agreement and that agreement will set out the principal commercial terms that govern the insurance agreement and the reinsurance agreement. So coming back to the two principal parties I mentioned, the intermediary and the reinsurer. So why do we have an intermediary? Well, we need it for regulatory purposes. A reinsurer cannot enter into a transaction directly with a pension scheme. So it needs an entity to transfer the risk into insurance so that it can reinsure the insurance risk. As Ian mentioned before, it will usually be an insurer. So I say usually an insurer because if you go back probably about 10 years, there are a number of longevity transactions that were done as derivatives. So between banks and pension schemes. Uh, those are actually relatively unusual now. So almost all transactions are done in insurance form. So if it is insurance, what form does the insurer take? Well, there are two possibilities. It could be intermediated or it could be a captive insurer. If it's intermediated, it will be a third party UK insurer. So by third party, I mean there's no connection to the pension scheme. It's independent of the pension scheme. The intermediated insurer may retain some risk. So it may keep some risk, which will mean not all risk or most of it will be passed to the reinsurer and the insurer retains a small amount of risk, say 10 or 20%. In addition, the intermediated insurer will also perform the calculation agent role and the valuation agent role. And that's two of the principal operational functions within the longevity swap. So let's contrast that against a captive insurer. The captive insurer will not be based in the UK. It will be based offshore in jurisdictions such as Jersey, Guernsey or Bermuda. 
The captive will also be owned by the trustee. The trustee will set up the captive or pay for the captive to be set up. And for that, it will need the assistance of uh, organizations called renter captives. There will be no risk retention. Captive insurers are not set up to hold risk. So in this respect, it will act as a pass-through. 100% of the longevity risk will pass through the captive through to the reinsurer. In some senses, the captive solution is also more DIY, if you like, than the intermediated role. For example, the valuation and calculation role that I talked about earlier will be performed by third parties who will have to be employed by the captive and the trustee. So let's move on to the reinsurers. The reinsurers are the ultimate risk takers. So why is it they take the risk? Well, that's predominantly diversification driven. So what do I mean by diversification driven? Most of the reinsurers hold substantial books of mortality risk. Now, mortality risk is the opposite risk of longevity risk. Taking a simple example, if you take a life insurance policy, the policyholder pays the insurer for so long as it's alive. When the policyholder dies, then the insurer pays a lump sum to the policyholder. So the risk from the insurer's perspective is that the policyholder dies and it has to pay. If you then look at annuity risk, which is the opposite risk and longevity risk, well there the insurer pays the policyholder until the policyholder dies. At the point of death, the insurer is no longer liable to pay the policyholder. So they're opposing and offsetting risks, which is why for reinsurers with mortality risk, UK longevity risk is very attractive as it provides an offset to their mortality book. The reinsurers are predominantly international. Uh, jurisdictions will include, for example, the United States, Canada, France, Germany, Luxembourg, etc. In terms of choosing the reinsurer, well, that, there will be a tender process which is very similar to a buy-in. process like a buy-in is predominantly price-driven. However, there are important jurisdictional differences between the, the reinsurers because they are based internationally in different jurisdictions. Those jurisdictional differences can mean changes in tax treatment for withholding tax, for example. The collateral structure may have to be different and there may be data protection considerations. Also, there are other factors, for example, assistance with optionality. The most important option for the trustees in these transactions is the option to move to buy-in and buy-out. Trustees will not be holding these transactions for the entire life of the longevity swap, which could be up to 40 years. They will almost certainly want to move to buy-in and buy-out when scheme funding permits. So it's important on day one to know what relationships the reinsurer has with the bulk annuity providers. Has it provided reinsurance to the bulk annuity providers? If it has those relationships, then, then swapping from a longevity swap to a buy-in will be much more simple. Another difference is documentation. Prudential Financial in this respect is almost new, unique. It has its own documentation, which it will provide to the trustee. If an intermediated insurer, so a third party UK insurer is involved, for example, like Zurich or LNG, it will provide the documentation to the trustee. If a trustee uses a captive insurer, no documentation will be available and therefore the trustee will have to draft the documentation itself. So at this point, I'll hand back to Ian, who will deal with market activity and the drivers to current market activity.
Thank you, James. Now let's spend a moment looking at how the market for longevity hedging has developed and particularly how it's become very active in, in recent years. Uh, so the first longevity swaps were completed some 11 years ago in 2009, and there have been a modest number of longevity swaps completed each year since then. But, but more generally, the de-risking market over the past two to three years has really dramatically increased in value, certainly by liability transferred. In 2018, uh, the de-risking market for UK pension schemes was at around £29 billion transferred. So, for example, in 2018, the uh, market for de-risking both buy-ins and longevity swaps was approximately £29 billion, whereas in 2019, that number had risen to in excess of £55 billion. Uh, and our prediction for this year, 2020, is that we will see a further 50 billion of risk transferred from UK pension schemes to the, to the insurance market. Now, to put those numbers into context, the regular average for the previous, previous few years was around about 15 billion. So we've had a dramatic increase in activity, certainly in respect of liabilities transferred. And this has been driven by a number of factors. So those factors in include market pricing has been attractive, in fact, at uh, historically uh, attractive le levels, both for longevity risk through longevity swaps and indeed at times for, for buy-in and buy-out transactions. On the other side of the, uh, of the purchase of a, of a de-risking transaction, scheme funding positions have typically improved this has been driven by deficit contributions being collected, uh, in, in investment returns up until the uh, very recent past being, being positive, and, and importantly, there being a release in respect of some of the reserves held for longevity. This has resulted in many, many pension funds realizing they are further along their journey plan to de-risking than they had anticipated which has enabled them to either de-risk further through either longevity swaps or buy-ins, or indeed some have bought out entirely and transferred the risk to the insurance market. Specifically for longevity swaps, in my view, there's also a, a, a driver of the increased activity through increased understanding, understanding by pension schemes of how longevity swaps work, how they protect them from a material risk. And indeed, um, unlike some of the earlier transactions where there was concern as to whether they would be portable for a longer term uh, journey, perhaps to buy out, um, a proof that that absolutely works. So when put all these factors together, we have seen a significant increase in the activity and the willingness to undertake longevity swaps. But of course, I can't talk about longevity swaps without considering um, the COVID-19 pandemic and what impact that might have on trustees considering entering into a longevity swap. Fra frankly, the simple question is, you know, should a trustee that's considering such a, uh, a transaction defer that transaction until 
there is more certainty that the pandemic is, is behind us. Many trustees that we've been working with have asked themselves that question. And in order to help them answer that question, we have assessed the impact for their population of COVID-19. And we have looked at the specific death rate within their, within their scheme. For some, we do this on a weekly basis currently. And how that compares to prior years and indeed how it compares to the national statistics that have been seen. What emerges, and, I, and this is in fact no surprise, what emerges is for most pension schemes, there has been during April, March and April of this year, there's been an increase in the mortality rate. More people have been dying than anticipated. Although that increase has been relatively modest, perhaps um, muted somewhat by socio-demographic factors. And more importantly, that increase has had a very modest impact on funding and liability assessments due to the fact that, sadly, those that have died um, were of older ages and therefore were not of a significant liability. More recently, as we've been tracking scheme experience since April, May and onwards, we have seen a, a period of modestly lower mortality rates than, uh, than the prior pre periods. It's too early to say whether that's a function of individuals having died slightly early and therefore there being an offset coming through, or whether it's just an idiosyncratic aspect in the data, given we've had a, a, a very mild summer. So on that point, uh, I'd like to hand over to Amy Kessler. Thank you, Ian. We agree completely with your conclusion that the pandemic is moving pension liabilities very modestly. To prove this, we've been collaborating with Andrew Cairns, David Blake, and Marcia Kessler to look closely at how the pandemic will impact liability estimation for insurers and pension funds around the world. I'm happy to share what we've learned. First, we found that during the COVID-19 outbreak from March through May of 2020, the pandemic effectively doubled mortality rates for older people. We know that mortality is usually looked at on a logarithmic scale and mortality increases exponentially with age. When we analyze COVID-19 mortality rates on the same logarithmic scale that we use for all-cause mortality, we see the same pattern of mortality rates increasing exponentially with age. And we see that COVID-19 mortality during the outbreak is almost as high as all-cause mortality for the same period in prior years. That means that COVID-19 effectively doubled each cohort's mortality rate during the spring outbreak. Effectively, COVID-19 is increasing each cohort's short-term mortality risk by a common multiplicative factor, no matter what their baseline mortality risk was before the pandemic. We also know that a significant proportion of people who die from COVID-19 are in a frail state with comorbidities that significantly raise their risk of death. A very high proportion of people who died from COVID-19 had dementia, heart disease, or respiratory disease. And only about 10% of people who died from COVID-19 had no pre-existing conditions and were essentially healthy individuals. This means that the people who have died 
started out more likely to die. To understand this better, Andrew Cairns and David Blake created an accelerated deaths model. The key point of the model is that within a given cohort, some people are in relatively good health and some are in poorer health. Those currently in poorer health will feature more heavily in early deaths among the cohort, while the healthier people will feature heavily in the later deaths. We've all seen significant excess death during the pandemic outbreak, and we're trying to define when these people would otherwise have died in the, in the absence of the pandemic. If the people dying of the coronavirus are more frail than the rest of their cohort, then in the absence of the pandemic, they would have died sooner than average and the survivors may have lived longer. But in the context of the entire retired population in the United Kingdom, these impacts are very small. Fortunately, mitigation efforts in the UK have been effective. And while every life lost is tragic, the overall death toll is currently under 80,000 and has been just a fraction of the worst case scenario of 500,000 deaths identified by the Imperial College at the beginning of the pandemic. Now we have looked at four realistic scenarios for the pandemic. And we found that the impact on life expectancy of survivors is likely to be very modest. Our baseline scenario A is a scenario with 80,000 deaths. Though each death is tragic, the impact on the life expectancy of survivors is very modest. We found less than two tenths of 1% increase in life expectancy at age 65 and less than a 1% increase above age 90. In scenario B, deaths increase by 50% at all ages, assuming a second wave of the pandemic. And in all of these scenarios, the increases in life expectancy for the surviving elderly population are small. And we have also considered how different socioeconomic groups are being impacted by COVID-19, and specifically, whether lower socioeconomic groups are suffering a disproportionate share of deaths. In any socioeconomic comparison, we need to start with the fact that more deprived areas have significantly higher mortality by age than less deprived areas. And this is true even when there is no pandemic. We used England and Wales data by income decile running from the least deprived to the most deprived. Our benchmark is all-cause mortality, and as expected, differences in all-cause mortality go steadily higher, moving from the least to the most deprived. In the most deprived group, all-cause mortality is about 90% higher than the least deprived. When we analyzed COVID-19 mortality in each decile relative to the least deprived, it appeared that the three most deprived deciles had been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. But there are confounding factors at play. For instance, London has experienced by far the highest COVID-19 death rates compared to other regions, but London also has a disproportionately high number of deprived areas. These two factors 
push up the relative death rates in the three most deprived deciles. When we removed the regional differences, we found that COVID-19 mortality among the most deprived is roughly proportional to the higher all-cause mortality they already experience. So what does this all mean? It means that the coronavirus has indeed had its greatest impact on the most deprived among us, and by extension, on communities of color. But it also means that this impact is completely in proportion to the higher mortality these groups always suffer from any cause. If the virus effectively doubles each cohort's mortality rate, the groups with the most alarming impact will be those whose mortality rates were highest in the first place the frail elderly, those with significant comorbidities, the most deprived among us, and by extension, communities of color. But these same groups make up a relatively small portion of overall pension liabilities. And as we've shown with the accelerated deaths model, at the present time, the pandemic is having a very small impact on life expectancy and on pension liabilities. But in contrast, we've all seen the impact on financial markets. The pandemic has had a huge impact on interest rates, asset values, and spreads. Spreads have widened considerably, and that means that buy-in and buy-out pricing has improved. If we look at pensioner buy-in pricing since June of 2015, we see the implied return on buy-ins and buy-outs relative to gilts has been above zero and generally rising for most of these five years. When the implied return is above zero, buy-in pricing has an implied return above gilts, and the higher the better. In fact, during the pandemic, since March of 2020, spreads have been their highest in recent history. So while pension liabilities have moved very little in the crisis, we know that rates, assets, and spreads have moved quite a lot, and the cost of risk transfer has actually improved. With spreads having widened in buy-in and buy-out pricing and overall liabilities declining slightly, it is a fine time for pension funds to proceed with transactions if they have achieved high hedge ratios, high fixed income allocations, and healthy funded status in advance of this pandemic. It pays to be prepared. And for those schemes in good shape due to their hard work and disciplined journey plan, they can afford to continue. And many are confidently continuing with longevity swaps as well as buy-ins and buy-outs on their way to a lower risk future. Back to you, James. Thank you, Amy. And thank you, Ian. So that brings the episode to a close. I hope you've enjoyed listening. I hope it was informative. Just as a reminder, as I said at the beginning, this is the, the first in a three-part series on pensions de-risking. So there will be two further episodes dealing with consolidators and buy-in. Thank you.